find our seats. Get ready to dig into Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7 through 12 are the forgotten half of Daniel. The, the side of Daniel you never studied in Sunday school. I would put money on it unless it's an adult Sunday school. But in kids Sunday school, we, we haven't done that. And, but here we are. We're going, we go through whole books of the Bible and we are going to continue to do that. Welcome to those that are watching in the gym and online. I'm Pastor Ron, one of the pastors here, and we are glad to be able to worship together this morning. Many years ago was the first time that I took a group to Wildwood. That was many years ago, wasn't it? Uh, We might have a couple people here that went that first year. I don't know, I think Kristen did, and John might have. John, yeah, there, welcome. Um, That very first year, back when Wildwood was still Wildwood, and it wasn't Mildwood, I just lost all our current high schoolers. (laughs) What, you have to bike like 20 feet? Come on. Um, You have a pool. It's Mildwood. But that very first year, um, it it was a great year, and it was basically just our church. We were the first church to ever try Wildwood. And so we had most of the camp, and our pawn, which is what they call our leader, his name was Kip. I don't remember Kip. And and one of the things that they do at, at Wildwood is they take your watch away and they tell you nothing. Because they're, they're just trying to have you re- get rid of all those things of control and trust those in charge as they lead you through what happens each day. And I remember our leader, Kip, was from Mississippi. And, and I... I might try the accent, I don't know, but he had no, he had a heavy Mississippi accent. And whenever we would ask something, and our, our students would ask something, we're like, well, what time's dinner? He's like, I don't know. Or, or we'd like, well, are we going to do this today? And his standard answer was, maybe. Did I do that okay? No. <laughs> and we probably heard maybe 200 times that week. Because it was, a, it was a statement that he wasn't going to answer you because you didn't need to know this right now. But we weren't sure what we were going to do. As we come to the, the second half of Daniel, this is the maybe half of Daniel, I would say. And it's not maybe because we're questioning what God is going to do, but we come to a genre of literature that we need to be very humble with how we interpret it. Because we come to prophecy and apocalyptic literature, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, that has these grand pictures, and we do not know exactly what they all stand for. Now, we're going to have some fun, and we're going to try to figure some of this out and some of the details out, but the whole time we have to say, maybe, because we aren't sure. And and so we, we come to this humbly... And, and the reason we can still, the reason this passage is still valuable, and I'll start with this, is that the big picture there's no maybe about. The big picture of what he's trying to share, what, what God is sharing to us through Daniel, the big picture is that the Ancient of Days is on the throne in a turbulent world. And none of the kingdoms and none of the things that happen in this world really matter in eternity because God is on the throne and nothing will change that and we will inherit a perfect kingdom, a forever kingdom. That's the big picture. But what we're going to do is we're going to get these little windows into what it might look like and and some of the things that God is revealing. God doesn't reveal all of the future to us. 
because we would get lazy and we would, who knows how we'd respond to that. He gives us just enough today to encourage us and just enough so we know that He is at work and has never stopped being at work. So we've finished the narratives, the first six chapters. And those actually, and, and some have said, well, these are like two different books. I'm like, no, they're not, because they have the same message. We saw six chapters of story, of events, of, of situations that proved God was most high, right? Nebuchadnezzar th- questioned it and ended up with boanthropy for, for seven years and living life as a cow. And Belshazzar questioned it and he ended up losing his whole, whole kingdom. And we saw over and over God is most high. There is none like Him. Thank you, worship team, for the songs this morning. Those touched my heart. There is something about singing about the greatness of God and that He is most high that stirs and comforts my soul. And that is the purpose of Daniel. And so this first, the first six chapters are these stories we've heard all showing God is most high. The second six is, is the outflow of that, of saying, see, we've proven God is most high, so now we can trust Him with the future. God is most high, trust Him, is really the, the, the makeup of this book. And so we are going to discover that God holds the future. He is sovereign. Now today, we're, we're going to take chapter 7, we're going to break it into two weeks because some of this will be a little more technical as we get into prophecy and apocalyptic literature. I think to understand it, we have to understand it. We have to understand the genre and, and how to address this. Let me start with just the, the whole idea of apocalyptic genre. And Revelation is another book of the Bible that we see is considered an apocalyptic genre. And, and what, is it, what do you think of when you hear apocalypse? End of times, end of the world. Fire and brimstone, okay? Well, well, the word for uh, apocalypse really just meant revelation, which is where we get the name revelation for the last book of the Bible because it, it starts with the Greek for apocalypse. And so it really just means revelation, but it, has, it came to be used of revelation of the end, of the end of time. And what is going to happen at the end? And this is so important for us as we trust God to be able to trust Him with our future, to know that He holds our future in His hand. And there is no doubt about it. But you're going to see in these six chapters, and you, and we know from the book of Revelation, that the apocalyptic literature, the genre of that, tends to paint what the lessons in big pictures. Okay, These are the graphic novels before graphic novels existed. Make sense? Which when I was growing up, we called comic books. But I guess that's not cool to call them that, so we have graphic novels now. Um, the apocalyptic literature was that. And so we're going to see these grand pictures, bizarre pictures, strange pictures, because they are all designed not necessarily to give a picture-perfect view of what's going to happen, but to give in symbols and in ideas the, the feeling and the idea of what was going to happen. And so we're going to see a lot of crazy symbols, even in today's text, that represent things. Now, now it's hard because with apocalyptic literature, it becomes hard to know what is an exact representation of what will happen and what is a symbol. 
You know, we do this all the time in English. We, we talk in symbolic language, and, and we're going to see this later, but if I say, man, th- there were thousands of people at Village today. Well, you're like, no, I counted. We're like 200. You are a liar. Well, no, no, what do I mean? What do we mean when we say thousands of people? Lots of people, right? Now, I wouldn't use that for village because 200 is a lot different from thousands. But when we see like these, these pictures of grand rallies at, at the Capitol or whatever, thousands of people make sense. And we know that that's not an exact count. It's a symbol. It's a representation. And so that happens all the time in apocalyptic literature. That happens all the time in Daniel. And so really a good rule of thumb and, and by the way, this is why so many scholars disagree. Because when you get into symbols, different people can take it different ways. And, and it's like, no, no, I, I think there is going to be a flying lion. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That one it says is a symbol. Um, a good rule of thumb is to accept the plain sense of it unless there's a good reason to adopt some other meaning. Make sense? Accept the plain reading of Scripture unless there's a good reason to view it as a symbol. And so when we see words in today's text like, like like a lion or like a leopard, that probably means it's a symbol because we have the clue right in the text. Now those are obvious ones. We don't always have that clue. But we are going to see truths of what is going to happen come out in these symbols. And that's just a, a that is a, a brief run through in five minutes of apocalyptic literature. And, and it is why these are so difficult and why you have, you know, 200, 2 million views of Revelation. See what I did there? There's not really 2 million. But lots, a plethora. The other thing I just want to review, and this is something that we, we talk about every time we come to prophecy because I think it's important to understand. We need to think of mountains when we come to prophecy. And, and if you think of mountain ranges, and I've used this picture before, and this is just a great illustration. This is an older picture because if you took it now, it would just be all smoke. But, um, and we're praying for the, I know, it's like, uh. So I'm on some, some Facebook groups of this area and they're posting things like that. All smoke and then they put arrows and label the mountains that you can't see. I'm like, oh, come on. Um, <laughs> but this is Mount Whitney. And if you remember our discussions of prophecy, you have different ranges of mountains. You have the Alabama Hills there in the forefront. But even Whitney, the one that's in the middle to the right set way back, that is set way back and those other mountains are in front of it, right? Now from this perspective, looking off, and this is so true of prophecy, two things I want you to remember. Valleys and then multiple peaks. Valleys and multiple peaks. There are valleys between those peaks. And when prophecy, we are just looking at a picture, a picture like this will be painted for us, And we don't always know where the valleys are. When you hike, you find this out. You're like, oh, it's just over the next hill. Nope. My kids hate it when I say that. (laughs) No, 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 we've been on hikes with you. Um, And so valleys in prophecy is the same thing. You may see a description of event that's happening in 100 years or 200 years right alongside an event that's happening at the end of the age, at the end of time prayerfully soon, but we don't know when. And, and those will be all one picture just like they are here. This isn't God trying to trick us, but he's giving us a broad view of, of the future. 
usually to bring out some sort of theme today that God Most High reigns forever. And so that's the, the idea of valleys. The multiple peaks are, if you were to look at this, you will see one peak right in front of another, and they look really similar at times, especially with the, the granite of the Sierras. They just look really similar. And when we come to prophecy, that often happens where you get multiple fulfillment of prophecy. You get a shorter-term one that partially fulfills it, and, but it's still pointing to a longer-term fulfillment of that prophecy. And so really, if you think valleys and multiple peaks in a picture, you'll understand a little bit more how to understand prophecy and how to interpret prophecy. In today's text, we're actually going to go, Daniel has a vision that involves the recent past for him, the the near future for him, the little bit farther future for him, and the end of time for all of us, all in one picture. So we have to, this again makes it difficult and we come to this humbly and say, well, I think this is this age and I, I think this is this age and that's great to do. Big picture today, God is most high and his kingdom reigns forever. And that's, that's sort of my 10 minute now primer on prophecy and apocalyptic literature. I'd love to talk more. If you grab some of our notes on our playing with fire class, you'll see a little bit more of how to interpret these things. But turn with me to Daniel chapter 7. And let's dive in. Daniel chapter 7. One other note, chapters 7 through 12 overlap in time, chapters 1 through 6. Okay, so 1 through 6 were chronological, but 7 doesn't just pick up. 7 actually is going to go back, and we're going to read to the first year of Belshazzar. Anyone remember who Belshazzar was? I'm going to assume that you said a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. And um, actually the son of Nabonidus, and by marriage through Nebuchadnezzar. And he was a, a co-regent. He, he reigned as king while dad was out of town for 10 years. And so he was listed as the king of Babylon during this time. If you are thinking through chronologically, the events here happened between Daniel 4 and Daniel 5. Okay? Daniel 5, we see the end of Belshazzar, and Pastor Andrew taught us on that, where his pride overcame him and God humbled him. But in the first year of his reign, and then in, the, in two weeks we'll do chapter 8, the third year of Belshazzar's reign. So we start sort of in the middle here. Now we have to understand the setting. <clears throat> King Nebuchadnezzar, in all of his evil and all of his problems, he actually... Israel figured out how to live under him, okay? Because he also had a lot of social programs and, and, and the, the Jews that were there fit into his government. And, and so life wasn't as bad under Nebuchadnezzar as it was under Belshazzar. And Belshazzar just was bringing the hammer and just really cruel in many ways and not recognizing them or their contributions. In fact, we see Daniel sidelined um, at the beginning of it. So this is a time in, in Jewish history in Babylon where they're like, what is going on? As if being exiled wasn't bad enough, it just got worse. And so in, in, it's a little bit of conjecture, but I think this is why God is bringing this vision at this time to encourage his people, to encourage them to a bigger perspective. And so we come to Daniel chapter 7. We're about 50 years since deportation. So Daniel is about 65 at this point, um, and he, he has a dream. 
And so we come to verse 1, and point number 1 in your notes, which is just going to walk us through this dream. The four alarming beasts are not outside of God's rule. And all of the points are going to deal with God's rule. The four alarming beasts are not outside of God's rule. So we open up the graphic novel, and we start to see this picture given to us in words in this case. In verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So right from the start, we get a quick introduction to Daniel's in bed, and he has this dream and and vision, and he wants to to write this down because this rocks him. And we're going to see that in the text. This rattles him a little bit, but he knows this is from God. He knows God is trying to teach something. And so we get this dream, and now the pictures start to come. In verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four beasts came out of the sea different from one another. And so he's dreaming, and he just sees this vast water, expansive water. And if you picture any movies you've seen, picture them out in the middle of the sea, no land in sight, no ships. And the idea here is that it's, it's turbulent water. It's stormy, okay? Can you picture that? You're just bobbing up and down, hoping to get a breath and, and hoping to survive. That's where this starts. A couple of things as we get into this. Later in the chapter, he explains it. And, and he ex- actually explains it in several stages. We're going to sort of look at it all together. And so some of that I'm going to, we're going to talk about right up front, even though he's just describing the dream but it will help us understand it. A great sea, for instance, we're like, what is that? And some have said, well, maybe it's the Mediterranean Sea or Sea of Galilee, but that's not big enough. And one of the things we see in Scripture is a great sea like this is often used of the world, of the earth. I mean, even in the creation account, there was an expanse of waters that the Holy Spirit hovered over. But this is one of those ones we don't actually have to guess on. Because later... In verse 17, it says, These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. And so where possible, let Scripture interpret Scripture. And we're going to do that today. In fact, chapter 7 mirrors chapter 2. And the chart you have at the bottom of your notes shows the two, and that helps us understand. But here we know this great sea represents the earth. It represents humanity, the sinfulness and lostness of humanity. The beasts we see in verse 17, and this is sorry for the spoiler because we're not there yet, but um, the beasts are the, are the four kings, are four kings who will arise out of the earth. We're going to see throughout the chapter that kings and kingdoms are used synonymously. So these are four kingdoms led by four kings. And so that just sets us up to understand this as we, as we talk this through, as we see this picture, expansive sea, turbulent, representing just the turbulence of this godless world. I know that none of us ever think that this world is turbulent with anything. Politics, world events, anything. No, we live in a turbulent world, right? And so this speaks to us just like it does to him. The four winds that are over it um, quite possibly represent God's sovereign control. That he is still over the turbulence, that he is still above this. And so we see verse 3, we get to the four beasts and what they are. The four great beasts come out of the sea different from one another. 
The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Picturing it? So you got a picture of the sea. Oh, we have a picture. And out of this comes this lion. And these are the, the, the picture here, and what we'll find from the results, it's, it's a fearsome picture. So these are not like little, little kitty cats. This is a fearsome monster, a fearsome beast, a lion with wings. And, and we, this would represent dominion and strength. And, and we know that uh, even in Jeremiah, elsewhere in Scripture, a couple of the images that are used of, of Babylon is a lion and an eagle. And so here we have this lion coming out of the sea, has eagle's wings. Then I, as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And, and, and again, we come at this, maybe. It really looks like this is referring to Nebuchadnezzar, though, right? Remember, he, his, his mind was plucked out of him, and then he was risen back up to be a man. And so, so we have this image that looks like Babylon, and that matches chapter 2. The head of gold was King Nebuchadnezzar. And if we go to the next picture, here's another picture that we see lions with wings. This was a, a, a representation of Babylon, right? It's not uncommon to represent nations by animals. If I was to say in today's, in, in today's um, culture, what, what nation would a bear represent? Russia, okay? Um, and maybe some didn't know that, but Russia is often referred to as the bear. Um, what about an eagle? United States, America. And, and we praise God that Benjamin Franklin didn't get his way. Otherwise, we'd be saying a turkey. But, um, but animals can represent countries or nations. And in this case, that's what's happening. Babylon is represented here as the first beast. Do I have any more of this? No, we'll get to that one. <laughs> that one's the third beast. So then we get to the second beast in verse 5. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. This is not a Disney show. And so we, 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 we're looking at the picture and, and the lion with the eagle's wings sort of fades off and up out of the water, this turbulent water, comes this giant bear. And, and a couple of clues you see there. And, and this represents the Medo-Persian Empire, we think. Maybe. Um, it, it looks like this represents the Medo-Persian arm, um, nation. Uh, a couple of reasons why it was raised up on one side. So it looks like one side is stronger than the other. And in the Medo-Persian Empire, we know, and we're going to see that in, in the next chapter as well, we know that, that the Persian component was stronger. And it was known to be larger. And it was often portrayed larger. And so that looks like what the bear is portraying. The three ribs in its, in, in, in its mouth, these are conquests. And we know that the Medo-Persian Empire, their main con- conquests were Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. And so these represent what was to soon come for Daniel. So the first one is what had already happened. The next one is what would soon come. And, and this, this bear is chomping on these ribs because it's destroying the other nations. And it says, devour more. And, and I can just picture Daniel watching this like, what is going on? 
I, I had bad pizza last night or something. I don't know if they had pizza back then. If they did, it probably had pineapple on it. But that's, um, that's another argument that I just lost another third. Um, whatever it was, this, this wasn't just bad food. This was a vision from God. And he's seeing these graphic, horrible things, but, but it has his attention. You know, Friday night, young adults were over at our house, and, and afterwards, um, Norm back there texted me from his car and said, you know, you have a cat outside eating something. And that's all that had to be said. And everyone gets up and like, let's go look at the cat eat something. And it's chewing on this mouse. And it, it's, I'm like, why does that captivate us? I don't know. But it did, and this is the imagery that is captivating Daniel. This bear now is, is chomping on the, the remnants of other nations. And it is the next great world power. In verse 6, we get to the third beast. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And so this fourth beast looks like a leopard, but it has these four wings and four heads. And it looks like this represents the Grecian Empire or Greece and Alexander the Great. And the wings represent speed. The leopard already is fairly fast. Yeah, you and I aren't out running it. But add four wings to it, and the idea is the speed. And it's really interesting that Alexander the Great, he conquered the known world in 12 years. The quickest it had ever been done at that point. And so there was this idea of, of speed and him coming in. And then after he died, his kingdom was divided into four sections. You had the Greece and Macedonia section, the Thrace and Asia Minor section, the Syria and Babylon section, and Egypt and Israel section. And different generals took each of them. And here, right in the... And this is written hundreds of years before this happened. God is saying, be said four heads. Dominion was given to it. And so it's this, this Grecian empire that then rules the known world at the time. Split into four. It's interesting, the picture that I mentioned, this is a, a picture of Alexander the Great. And do you see what's on his head? One of the images for him was one of these cats of... of cats of prey, can you say that? Cat, um, big cats. Fast. Eat things. Those things. <laughs> um, and so this imagery, this is hundreds of years before it happened. This should remind us God is most high. God is superintending history. Have no doubt that God is in control. And so then we get to the, the fourth beast. And this is a different beast. Verse 7. After this, I saw in the night visions, there's even a shift of how he's describing it. It's almost like turning the page of the graphic novel. New picture, still the sea, the other beasts fade away. And after this, I saw night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. This is the stuff nightmares are made of. And so this beast comes up. What animal is it like? trick question doesn't say it's unlike any animal we know 
It's beyond description other than it's fearsome. And, and, and one of the points of that picture is that this kingdom, something about this is inherently different from the others. And we're going to see that stated in the text over and over. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. Daniel goes on to say, I considered the horns, meaning he looked at them intently. I'm looking at the ten horns, and all of a sudden, behold, suddenly there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And so this is a violent, this little horn tears apart three of the other horns and takes its place. And in this horn were eyes like that of a man, referring to this probably as a human he's talking about, probably with intelligence, and a mouth speaking great things, an arrogant, boastful man. Now this is is weird stuff. And we're going to dive into a lot of that in detail next week, where we'll look at, because this probably, in my opinion, represents the Antichrist. And we'll talk about why I think that next week and some of the other texts. But for now, that's just a little uh, teaser for next week. But this fourth beast is a fearsome beast. Iron teeth. It can rip things apart. Ten horns. And horns represented power and authority or kingship. And so we think that this might represent, maybe, um, ten different kings or ten different rulers that are ruling either at the same time or in succession. Whatever it is, it is a great kingdom, a vicious kingdom, one to be feared. Now, quite possibly, this is one of those double mountain situations where the first place that this is, is seen is in the kingdom of Rome. And we know that the, the Roman Empire replaced Greece, and, and that is the, the setting which brought the Messiah. But then there's a whole lot of language that we see here and later that can only be end-of-time language. Because the language is that this kingdom is abruptly halted, and we're going to see that in a minute, and replaced by the kingdom of God. And all kingdoms of this earth are gone. Has that happened yet? No. If not, this is a lousy heaven. It hasn't happened yet. We have kingdoms of this earth and sinful kingdoms still ruling. And so we have something to look forward to, village. But we see this first uh, a partial fulfillment in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire surpassed all the others in power, in longevity, in influence. But eventually we'll see a more devastating empire of sin led by the Antichrist. Which is that fourth horn. Or the the fourth beast, the the eleventh horn, the, the little horn. We don't know, but that's a possibility and we'll get there. If you look at the bottom, there's a chart there that just helps us understand. In Daniel 2, we had the head of gold which represented Babylon. That's the lion in this passage. We had the chest of silver, the Medo-Persian Empire, which represents the bear in this passage. And keep in mind, these are, these are 50 years apart. And God's reminding and assuring. The middle of, and thighs of bronze, Greece, and that represents the leopard here. The legs of iron with the ten toes. Interesting, the, the similarities. Um, Rome, but then ultimately the kingdoms at the end of the age. And that's the terrifying beast here. And we see the Antichrist as the little horn. So that's the first eight verses. The first picture. If that's all you got, it would be a very, very troubling dream. Right? It just it would mess with your head. But that's not all God chose to give us. 
That's not all. And so we get to verse 9, and it's like turning the page, or in Star Wars you get the slow wipe that goes to a completely different scene. And and it, it turns the page picturely to another scene that we are to see as a contrast to the first scene. First scene are these four kingdoms of earth, turbulent, dark, vicious. And we get to verse 9, and we get to the throne room in heaven. Verse 9. And so point number 2, the court of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man display God's rule. The court of the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man display God's rule. Verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Do you see how he's painting a picture here? Just picture this. A stream of fire issued and came out from him. A thousand thousand served him. That's a million people served him. And and 10,000 times 10,000, 100 million people stood before him. And again, those are figurative. A lot of people, a, a mass of people, servants probably included angels here. And the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. And we get this moment where we, we see come onto the scene the Ancient of Days. And this is a, a description of Yahweh. This is a description of God Almighty and they would have understood that. And we, when we talked about the names of God, we talked about Ancient of Days. And you see imagery here. His clothing was white as snow representing purity and holiness. His hair was white, also representing purity, but also representing wisdom. Because it doesn't just mean he was old. It means he's been here from everlasting to everlasting. The Ancient of Days has always been and always will be and has all wisdom in himself. And so we see this magnificent picture, and, and this, this warms my heart. I, I, I have a hard time worrying about this world when I'm focusing on who God is. His clothing was white as snow, hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. So this is like a chariot throne. In Ezekiel, we see the same imagery. And the fire here represents two different things, usually in Scripture. It can represent glory, which certainly fits the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Fire also represents judgment, purification. And we see that in the next verse about a stream of fire issued and came out from him. And so this is a courtroom scene that we we had the, the ocean scene or the sea scene. We had the earth. And now we come to heaven and we see the real ruler, the real Most High, that now is going to issue a just pure, holy judgment on sin and on this world. And that also has a sense of fear to it, but more of an awe and an amen. Oh, for God's justice. Oh, for this to happen. And the picture is the Ancient of Days walks in. And there's thrones all around, one in the center that's his. The others, I think, probably are are reflected in the thrones we see in Revelation. And he walks in, and and I can just picture the scene, a little bit of, of imagination here. I can picture everything just going quiet. And he walks in and takes his seat on the throne. 
Just like if you were in a courtroom and you saw a judge come in and, and where everyone stands and you go quiet and there's a respect. And that is the scene here. The real ruler is here. Forget the beasts. The Most High has shown up and He's on the scene. And that's the picture that God wants us to see through Daniel here. The books were opened, representing the deeds are about to be judged. The, the actions of people are about to be judged. And then in verse 11 and 12, we get the, the little sub scene. So we have little cut scenes here. We have the Ancient of Days walks in. Then we get this little cut scene of the little horn. Remember the little horn from the fourth, fourth beast? What did it say about its mouth? What did we say? Arrogant, right? Big things about himself. Look at me. Probably saying, I'm the most high. And in verse 11 and 12, I looked then because the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Yes, you are great. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. There was a little horn. <laughs> There's a sense of quickness, a sense of finality there. And I, and I think the picture is saying there is no contest between anyone and God. There is none like him. He, again, he is the most high. The fourth beast was killed, body destroyed, given over to be burned with fire. That's the judgment. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, kingdoms ripped away. Their lives were prolonged for a season and a time, representing these other kingdoms were, were replaced by kingdoms on earth. And so they had influence as their culture was assimilated. They still had some influence, but not the fourth kingdom because that represents the end of time. And it's just ended and cut off. Then we get to the third cut scene of this throne room scene, uh, verse 13. And this is such a core passage to understand. Because up until this point, the Son of Man name, that, that wording, usually represented humans. In fact, even in culture, we know that that was often represented, okay, it's a man. It's a man. Son of Man, okay, they're human. But it gets redefined here. And we see Jesus come on the scene in a grand and glorious way. One of the clearest representations of what is going to come when Jesus comes to earth. So 13, I saw in the night visions. Again, that's a phrase that you want to notice in here. He's usually changing scenes a little bit. I saw in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one. See that next word? like a son of man. That lets us know this is different. Like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And so this grand throne room scene, we see the beast destroyed and then we see the son of man coming on the clouds. Now, now I, I want to look at some of these scriptures to, to have us appreciate how Jesus is coming on the scene. To have us appreciate the divinity of the son of man. We, we talk about Jesus' humanity a, a lot, but Jesus was also the Most High. And He is God. And so here we see Him coming and riding the clouds. And, and the clouds representing God's place or the presence of God. He doesn't come from the sea like the other beasts and the other kingdoms. He is coming from the presence of God. One like a son of man. Some verses. And this is important to understand. They would have understood their Old Testament and they would have understood the verses. So we start with the Old Testament, Psalm 104.3. 
He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. That's a psalm about Yahweh. Psalm about God Almighty. Because in the Old Testament, up until this point, the only one that rode on clouds, the only one that came on clouds was God. And so this is as clear in the Old Testament as you'll see a description that Jesus is God. And so we see Yahweh makes his clouds a chariot. Isaiah 19.1, an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord, or Yahweh, is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. And so we can go to other verses. This imagery of the Son of Man coming on the clouds. To Daniel, that would have been like, this is God. This is God in human form. Sound familiar? Isn't that cool? Because 533 years later, God would come in human form. And he would live a perfect life. And he would die a death he didn't deserve that you and I deserved to take our place. And by doing that, allow us entrance into his kingdom, which is what this is all about. And then eventually at the end of time, he will be given that kingdom to rule here on earth in a real way. We see in verse 14, we see that happening. And to him, and this is the Son of Man, to, to the Messiah, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pace, pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Do you see the contrast between the four kingdoms that came out of the turbulent world and the kingdom of the Son of Man? This one lasts forever. It is everlasting. It will not be destroyed. And it will be ruled over by Christ Himself. Praise God we can look forward to that. You know, some, some will still say, oh, I don't know the Son of Man is the Messiah. That might be a leap. This is where I think the New Testament helps us as well. Scripture interprets Scripture. And so I want to look at a number of verses. We're going to look at, at five different passages in the New Testament as we, we draw towards a close today. Because I want us to see the picture of the Son of Man entering the scene. In Matthew sixteen twenty seven. Interestingly enough, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man more than any other title. Isn't that cool? Because he's referring back to Daniel, and by doing that, he's saying, that's me. That picture book you have, that's of me. And so we see here in Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. And the Son of Man there isn't a human, but is the Messiah, and in the context is the Messiah. In Mark 13, 26 and 27, Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth and the ends of the, to the ends of the heaven. And again, Jesus is referring to Himself as the Son of Man. You're going to see Me coming again in clouds with great power and glory. And the elect will be gathered. The elect will be with me. Mark 2, 10 and 11. The story of Jesus healing the paralytic that was let down through the roof. 
He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, referring back to Daniel and this, this image here, that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And that's a proclamation of where Jesus was saying, I am the Messiah. I can forgive sins. And, and in, case, in case we're like, well, I don't know if they understood it that way, when he said things like this, they tried to kill him for blasphemy because they understood what he was claiming. We see this again in Mark 14, 61 and 62, as Jesus is being interrogated just before the crucifixion. But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And if you read just two verses later, they tried to kill him for blasphemy again. And they ended up killing him. Jesus is the Son of Man riding on clouds because he reigns forever. In Revelation 1, verse 12 and 13, as we see this is a letter from Jesus to the churches. He says, John says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And it was Jesus. Sometimes we can read over some things like this in the Old Testament and we can miss the impact. And my, my prayer today is that we see this throne room scene and we see the Ancient of Days and we see Jesus the Messiah coming onto the scene to be granted dominion and rule over all. And we know that this will happen. This is one of the windows of prophecy that we get. And we can, it, it's sort of cool 2,000 years later because we can see all the others were true and we can piece all those together and we know the one coming is true. Son of Man, the second Adam, succeeds where Adam didn't. Adam failed to live a perfect life. He failed to live for God. Jesus lived that perfect life. He became the sacrifice for our sins. Now, a couple things that I, that I want to mention here, and this gets into sort of the fun details. Can we have some fun with some of the details? Do you notice the timing of 9 through 14? Ancient of Days takes us, we're after the four other, other beasts. Actually, the fourth one is still on the scene. Ancient of Days takes his seat. And we have the little horn, which I, I am proposing, maybe, represents the Antichrist. And the Antichrist is being all boastful and everything. Boom, he's destroyed. His kingdom is destroyed. And then the, the eternal, everlasting kingdom is given to Jesus. If we were to put this into timing, and I think I have a blown-up version of a chart that we sometimes use, and I tried to, to blow this. I should have brought a pointer up. Sorry. We have the rapture all the way to the left, but then the great tribulation is these seven years. We're going to get to this a lot more in Daniel 9. Um, Daniel 7, 8, and 9 are core to our understanding of Revelation and the end times. During the great tribulation, the Antichrist, especially the last three and a half years, um, which we'll get to today as well, or to next week, 
the last three and a half years, he is ruling with power and oppressing the saints. And then at the end of that, we have the second coming of Christ physically to earth. And boom, Armageddon happened. The beast is cut off. Satan is bound. And the kingdom, at that point, a real literal millennial earthly kingdom is given to Jesus to rule on earth. That's what we're reading about here. That's the timing. Now, again, in the prophecy where you see two peaks, this both refers to the beginning of the millennium and then the new heaven and new earth, all of that together being the eternal kingdom. But we we, we see a glimpse of what's to come, and that's cool. Miller wrote this, It is possible that this judgment may include both that of the Antichrist and his confederates at the beginning of the millennium, and the judgment of Satan and the remainder of the loss at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. It's, it's both of these. It's all of this put together and the judgments. But let me... I, that's sort of some of the fun details of the timing, and we begin to see a, a picture of what might be at the end of time. But let me jump back to the bigger picture. The bigger picture is the contrast between the kingdoms of this world, the turbulence of this world, and the peace and justice before the throne of God. And that his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. See, our trust village isn't for one of the kingdoms out of the sea to make this right. What happened with each successive beast? They destroyed the last beast, but none of them were utopia. None of them fixed the problem. The problem isn't fixed until the Ancient of Days, Most High, pounds his gavel and says, This is done. You are judged. Here is your penalty. That's when this is done. And so don't put your hope in kingdoms of this earth. Put your hope in the Lord Christ and his kingdom. This also helps us, and we're going to get this in the, in the last few verses we cover today. This also helps with our anxiety for today. But trust the Ancient of Days. You, you've heard me say this many times, and I may say it every week until the election. God already knows the results. Even if we may not know for months, God already knows the results. God isn't making a plan B. God is executing his plan A. I don't know what that's going to be. I was talking with one of you on a, on a Zoom call a couple weeks ago, and, and you said, you know what, it's really cool because we know how it ends, so we're just waiting to see how it works out. That's how we need to approach the turbulent times that we're in. Let's finish with point number three, the last four verses there. Anxiety is relieved because of God's rule. So we just saw the court of ancient of days, the Son of Man display God's rule. Anxiety is relieved because of God's rule, which is what, the, what I'm talking about right here. Listen to verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. Okay, this isn't like, oh, I'm a little anxious. No, he is troubled. This dream has woken him up and he's like, what is going on? This is bizarre. Even the the beasts and then this throne room scene. He is anxious. The vision of my head alarmed me. It's not easy being a messenger of God. It's not easy seeing these things. So in verse 16, it says, I approached one of those who stood there, possibly an angel that was standing there, and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. And we're going to dig into a lot of those next week. 
these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Just in case we don't get it. Forever, forever, and ever. It's this like, yes, this is really going to happen. And that is the main point of this text. The saints of the Most High receive a kingdom and will possess it forever because it is the kingdom of the Ancient of Days, the Most High. There's all kinds of debate or who are the saints there and without getting into all the details of it, the saints are tied with the the, um, Son of Man here and they are brought into the kingdom by the Son of Man. This has to be believers in Jesus Christ. Believers in God. I think it probably includes both Old Testament and New Testament, those that follow God in the Old Testament looking forward to Christ and believers in Christ. But these are saints or holy ones of the Most High. And this is a comfort and a joy to see what the end is. This is short, these four verses, but they're comforting. They have a sweetness to them. Yeah, don't be afraid. The beasts are the kingdom of earth, but you have a much better future than that. You know, I, 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 was, I experienced this again this week. And I've used this illustration before, but we lived it this week, so it's sort of cool to bring back up again. Um, I don't know if you know, the Dodgers are in the playoffs. If I could add, the Dodgers have not lost in the playoffs. And so, you know, be cheering. This is something we should be in prayer about. No, just kidding. (laughs) We're watching one of the games, um, unfortunately, one of the games where the Dodgers almost lost. And it's the ninth inning, and um, the other team loads the bases. And we're a little bit behind because we were, I forget why we had rewound and, and watched something. Um, and the bases are loaded. Our, the Dodgers reliever is awful in that game. And Mark is there watching it with Susie and I. And Susie and I have a, a little app on our phone that gives us notifications of what happened. <laughs> and we had forgotten to turn that off. And, and we're like all on the edge of our seats and we beep. And we both look at our phones and it says, Dodgers win. <laughs> and Susie and I are like, ah. Oh. And we wanted to watch the rest, right? Mark's still on edge. <laughs> One of my kids, sorry. One of my kids is still on edge. <laughs> and he's like, what happened? We're like, we're not going to tell you. I just want to watch his reaction now. But there was a difference of being on edge and being anxious And Susie and I were no longer anxious. Why? We knew the end. We knew the end. And I know I've used that before, but it was just fun to see that in action. This world can seem dark and turbulent. We can feel like we're bobbing up and down on the waves just trying to get a breath of air, but most of the time sucking in water and not even sure how we're going to survive the events that are happening around us. But don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't be alarmed. Think of that last verse. Think of the promise of our God. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Let's make sure our gaze is on the Ancient of Days, not on the water. Our gaze is on the kingdom that lasts for eternity. 
Isaiah 17, 13 says, The nations roar like the roaring of many waters. But, and again, you have nations and waters. The imagery is the same. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but He will rebuke them, and they will flee far away, chased like chaff on the mountain before the wind and whirling dust before the storm. God wins. We get to be part of it if we believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray for us as a church that we would take comfort in prophecy like this. Comfort in knowing you've given us windows into the future. Not all the details, a lot of maybes in our understanding, but not maybes in your plan. And so Lord, we trust you and we rely on you. Lord, because you win and you will defeat evil and you will defeat sin. Even when it seems like it's having its heyday, you will win. And Lord, may we live in light of that and be a people of hope and a, a people that live so differently because of that hope that the world can't help but notice. And Lord, I pray right now, if there is even one person here that has never given their life to the Son of Man, to Jesus Christ, who has never repented of sins and said, I recognize you came to create this kingdom, this family of God, and you died on the cross for me and rose again the third day, Lord. I pray if there's someone that hasn't made that commitment that today's the day that they would see that you already were painting the future, that this, this just shows how you are God and that you are creating a kingdom and inviting us in if we will follow you. Lord, thank you for the word and the promises therein. In your precious name, amen.